And so we're talking about Jesus giving life and life abundantly, right? And so what does that mean? What does it mean to live the good life, right? Everyone has their idea of what the good life is. Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does it mean to live the good life? Uh, what are the elements that come together to make a good life, right? Is it a life abundant with loved ones, uh, friends, children, grandchildren, even great-grandchildren? Uh, does a good life come from wealth or, or maybe even just having what you need, enough money in the bank, food on the table, a warm house, electricity, right? Something maybe we all missed this week. Uh, and of course, we want to be healthy, right? Or, or how about security? We want to be safe, right? Is the good life one where we're safe, protected, sheltered from harm? And a lot of people would say a longer life is better than a shorter life, right? We all want to live long, happy, and healthy lives, right? And really, we'd, we'd like to have some of all of the elements that I just mentioned, right, that to, to make up a good life. We want good company. We want our families. We want our friends. We want to have enough. We want to be safe, and we want to live as long as we can. But what happens when one or more of those elements that I mentioned aren't part of the equation, can we have a good life then? What happens, uh, for, for example, when you lose your memory, right? When you, when you can't do things that you used to do. Is it a, is it a good life then? Right? I've heard people say that they hope they, I've literally heard people say that they hope they die before that happens. Um, our passage today talks about the abundant life, and it had me thinking about these questions. Can, can a long life be a good life, even if it's missing some of these elements? Right? Some people say they'd rather die than, than go through certain pain. Right? And, and there are places in the world, even in this country, actually, that will grant you that wish. Areas that have legalized euthanasia. Do you, do you know what euthanasia actually means? The word, uh, it comes from the Greek words eu, which means good, and thanatos, which means death. So a good death, right? We're talking about a good life. A lot of people are wondering about a good death. And, and as I thought about this, two stories come to mind. The first was an article that I read about an 80-year-old woman named Annie who lived in the Netherlands. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, uh, and after hearing the diagnosis, it didn't take her long to come to the decision um, to choose euthanasia before her symptoms set in. So she actually agreed to be in a documentary to be filmed as she went through the emotional process leading up to it. it the documentary is called Before It's Too Late. It's a Dutch documentary. She says, I used to go climbing or skiing or whatever. In the village, they said, that Annie, she's always on the go. I'd put my rucksack on in the morning and I'd start hiking. I'd walk all day. Now I can't do anything. I get confused all the time. And the night before the procedure, she ate at a four-star restaurant with her kids, and her son said it was so special. Uh, her son said she wrote a letter to God asking him to take care of her children. She knew that if there was a God, it would be a really warm, forgiving God. 
She said, it's a pity I can't send an email back to my children to tell them what it's like. So the next day, surrounded by her children, the doctor gave her this special cocktail and an injection to give her the good death that she wanted to have, ending life before it got bad. And uh, she said, I thought it through once again last night, from start to finish and back, and in the end, this is what I want, purely for myself, this is what's best for me. So that's the first story I thought of, and when I read this story, another one popped into my head that's in stark contrast. Back in 2016, a video went viral of a 111-year-old woman named Hester Ford from South Carolina, and she was reciting Psalm 23. It's the psalm that we read uh, in the beginning of the service. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Or in another translation, I have what I need. This is what the article says about her. Ford suffers from dementia. Her hearing is almost gone, and her vision is also faltering. But she lives a full life and spent last weekend surrounded by her family during a huge party in her honor. Ford is the matriarch of a family that consists of 12 children, 58 grandchildren, 120 great-grandchildren, and 126 great-great-grandchildren. While 111 years have taken their toll on her body, one thing remains unscathed by the passage of time, her faith. Her faith remains unscathed. And you can ask folks who have worked in nursing homes. We have at least two in our church who have done that. They'll confirm that this is among the stuff that sticks and stays the longest in residence as they age and progress even through the stages of dementia. And they'd, they'd also tell you that as beautiful as this article is about Hester, her life is likely really hard. Right? She can't do things that she used to do, even daily living activities. She probably has times when she's scared, times when she's confused. And there's no promise that any of us will have her experience to live 111 years. But there's a difference between Hester and Annie who I mentioned earlier. And I don't share this story to shame Annie for her decision, but do you see the difference between the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and if there was a God, it would be a really warm, forgiving God. Do you see the contrast between a full life categorized by the question, what can I do? Hiking, biking, climbing, being known for being energetic, right? What can I do versus who is my shepherd? Between wondering who God is, if he exists at all, and knowing that he exists, and, and between knowing, wondering that and actually knowing that he exists, and indeed he is a warm and forgiving God, right? A God who promises abundant life to his children, I know this sermon isn't intended to strike up an argument or controversy about the ethics of euthanasia. I'm happy to have that conversation aside if you want to. It's only that this stark contrast between these two women's stories, it brings into question uh, what our world often considers the best life, right? Freedom, individualism, avoidance of pain, deciding and then choosing what's best for you, whether in life or in death. But, but is that entirely true? Right? Does that hold? Or is it a counterfeit? 
And when I ask, is that true? I mean, is that true before God? What does God have to say about the good life? In our passage today, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And he says he's come to give us abundant life. He's come to give the good life to his sheep. But what, is, what does any of that actually mean? We're going to tease that out this morning. We've been working through the book of John, and today we're in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. If you haven't flipped there, you can flip there. You can do it on your phone. Uh, we've been walking through the book of John, and we've been covering the highlights. So Jesus's major signs and his major statements, these times when he does something miraculous to show everybody who he is, or, or times when he just says plainly who he is, and he reveals this different facet of his identity. And so as we walk through this, we're going to ask three questions, and we're going to let scripture answer those questions for us this morning. We're going to ask, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does that mean for us? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does that mean for us? And um, I'm going to try to speak clearly because I know we have people using translation apps. So if it seems like I'm over-enunciating my words, that's why I want it to come through clear for them. Um, and so maybe you'd already say that you know the answers to these questions. And maybe you do, right? Who is Jesus? Uh, what did he come to do? What does that mean for me? But even if you think you do, I challenge you to stop and listen to what God wants to say to you through his word. So let's start with who is Jesus? And when I say that, I mean what unique aspect of Jesus is John showing us in this passage? Right? Our passage this morning comes directly after the one we talked about last week. Jesus just opened the eyes of this man born blind. That's what happened right in the chapter before this. Uh, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, they're throwing people out of synagogues if they profess Jesus as the Messiah. They just roughed up this blind man that Jesus healed because he believed in Jesus. And now Jesus just told the religious leaders that they're the blind ones because they don't see who he really is. And now he's going to tell them, uh, he's going to tell them and he's going to tell us more about who he is. Another facet to his identity, uh, his role, another facet to his relationship with his people. And so the conversation continues in verse 1 of chapter 10 as he starts to paint this picture of the good shepherd. And it's in contrast to these religious leaders who really were tasked with shepherding God's people. They were tasked with shepherding the Jewish people, Israel. Right? He's, gonna figure, he's going to use this figure of speech as a way of talking uh, that's almost like a, a, he's going to almost talk in a parable, almost in a story. There are characters that we're going to talk about, um, but it's truth. And that's the way Jesus opens uh, his saying. He says, truly, I tell you, he's telling the truth. He wants us to pay attention. Verse one, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him. And so now it's important to know uh, that when Jesus is talking about the sheep here, he means God's people. To his original listeners, that would have meant Israel. 
And, and so the brushstroke of this picture of the good shepherd that he's painting is one of contrast. Right? There are thieves and robbers who illegitimately enter the sheep pen. They come to take because that's what thieves and robbers do. They're not there to give. They're, they're not there to care for the sheep. They're either trying to steal the sheep or steal what the sheep have. Uh, but the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep, Jesus says. The gatekeeper opens it for him. He's recognized. He doesn't need to climb over the fence. He walks right in. He's not there to rob the sheep because they're his. So the first thing we see about the good shepherd is his legitimacy. His legitimacy. He's not an imposter. And there are other parts of the Bible that describe the Pharisees as really milking the Jewish people for what they're worth. They're the ones who would allow extortionists to enter the temple and change over money at these exorbitant uh, rates that were really targeting God's people as they were just on their way to worship God. Uh, and so when Jesus talks about thieves and robbers, people know what he means and who he is talking about. God's people should never be seen as a resource simply for the consumption of a leader. Right? And I'd, I'd love to say that this trend ended with the Pharisees, but it didn't. We have priests, pastors, spiritual leaders of all kinds. They, they don't always imitate the good shepherd. They don't always treat his flock with the level of care that he demands. And sometimes we find out that in the end they've jumped the fence and they're just there to fleece the sheep. And if you've come from a background like that where, where you were simply used as a resource or, or even worse, you were abused as such, I'm sorry because Jesus didn't desire that for you. It's not his desire for us that we would be treated like that by his under-shepherds, right? And, and we'll talk more about that because Jesus is going to talk more about that later in the passage. See, the good shepherd, he's categorized by legitimacy. He goes through the gate. And if we read the rest of verse 3, verse three, there's also an intimacy uh, that's unique to the good shepherd. The good shepherd, hear, the sheep hear the good shepherd's voice, right? He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, when he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. His sheep hear his voice. He calls them by name. This shepherd has names for his sheep, and he knows each one of them. I've, I've never been a shepherd, so I'm not sure if this is common practice among shepherds, but it seems like it's going above and beyond to have a bunch of sheep and to name each and every one of them and to call them by name. Jesus knows us. He knows you by name. He knows me better than I know myself. This shepherd loves his sheep and he leads them. He brings them outside the pen and they follow him because they know his voice. He knows their names and they know his voice. What a picture of what it means to have a relationship with God, to know his voice and he knows our names. So Jesus shows us that the shepherd, the good shepherd, he's legitimate. He's not a thief or a robber. He knows his sheep. He has a unique, intimate relationship 
with his sheep, and the sheep are his own, right? He owns the sheep. We get this picture of a shepherd who has authority but also loves deeply. He cares about his sheep. And this imagery actually harkens back to the Old Testament, and we need to take a look at that because Jesus is saying a lot of things right now without actually saying them. And since we're not back in that context of his original listeners, and we're not really even in the context of the original readers of this gospel, uh, it helps for us to build that out by going to the Old Testament and, and looking at what they would have known. And so centuries before Jesus came, God gave Ezekiel, the prophet, a harsh word for the shepherds of Israel, for the priests who were charged with the spiritual care of the people. In Ezekiel 34, 2, it says, This is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. I'm going to jump down to verse 10. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. Now that day, that, that day that Ezekiel spoke of centuries before is being fulfilled in this passage. Jesus is the good shepherd. God in the flesh, and he's come back for his sheep to take them out of the hands of these untrustworthy leaders to show a better way. And in John 10, 6, we're told they didn't understand what he was telling them. But this gets us to our second question. Uh, remember, I said we're going to let Scripture answer some questions for us. Who is Jesus? And, and we've seen he's the good shepherd. He's going to actually call himself that in a few verses. But the picture he's painting is of himself. He's legitimate, intimate, and the sheep are his own. That's who he is. Now, why did he come? Our second question. And, and Ezekiel's prophecy, it gives us a broad answer. Jesus came for his sheep. Right? Verse 7, Jesus said again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. And he's not talking about, you know, the prophets and people like Moses who came before him. He's talking about those unfaithful leaders. He's talking about folks um, like who would come, rise up and be false messiahs or shepherds who would be abusing the flock. Right? Jesus, as the gate, points to himself as the way to salvation, as the way to abundant life. And he says, a thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. So why did Jesus come? 
He says he came to give abundant life. He came to give the good life. Now, does that mean he came to make us all rich? Right? Did he come to make us all rich? Did he come to make us all happy, healthy, and wealthy? Did he come to make our dreams come true to fulfill our own definition of a good life, of an abundant life? See, the picture Jesus has painted so far is much different than the common picture we see today. We often base the abundant life in autonomy, right? My life, my way, what's right and best for me. But Jesus, Jesus is painting the abundant life as one that's not autonomous at all. His people are led by the good shepherd together, right, as a flock. He goes ahead of them, and they follow him. They, do, they don't do uh, whatever they want, right? They, they live according to his voice. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me, the psalm says. Sometimes he leads me through places I don't want to go. Sometimes to places that are calm. Sometimes to places that are rough, right? Sometimes through places that are scary and unknown. And sometimes he asks me to give up what feels good to me because he knows it's not good for me. But why should we trust him? Jesus tells us in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. So Jesus is the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep. Why can we trust him? Because Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. He didn't come to fleece the sheep. He actually came to be fleeced for the sheep. This is the salvation that he's talking about. You know, people, they rise up and they say they're the real deal. And then when push comes to shove, they're out for themselves. Jesus is not that way. He died for the sheep. And do you know who actually killed him? Right? Who had him killed? It's the very group that he's talking to here. The the, the so-called shepherds. Right? The thieves, the robbers, later he calls them wolves because he stood between them and the sheep. So they handed him over to Roman authorities to be killed on a cross. And before we go thinking that the sheep here are just innocent victims, we need to look at some other passages. Right? We all went astray like sheep, Scripture says. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. It's Isaiah 53, 6. It's another prophecy from centuries before Jesus even came. The Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all because we, like sheep, all went astray. Jesus died for the sheep. He took our iniquity. He took our sin on the cross with him, and he did it willingly. He says that in this, in this very passage, verse 18. No one takes it from me, his life, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. This is by choice for Jesus because of his great love. 
He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says, but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. And who are these other sheep? Right? These are the non-Jewish people, right? The non-Israelites. He didn't just die for Israel. He died for the world. Right? And this sets us up for the rest of the New Testament where we see the gospel, where we see the good news of Jesus spread beyond Israel into the nations, right? The, to the inclusion of all peoples, one flock, one shepherd, anyone who believes in Jesus, the good shepherd. And this is his church, right? Across generation transcending nation and beyond every barrier that you can think of, right? So who is Jesus? Jesus is the good shepherd. Why did he come? He came to save his sheep, to gather them from the ends of the earth and to give them abundant life. Now our third question, what does that mean for us? See, because just like the original audience, Jesus' original audience, we're faced with the question of what to do with all that he says. Right? What to do with Jesus. And this passage actually ends with a division among the Jews. They're arguing, is Jesus demonic or is he from God? Right? And it's the same roundabout argument that they've been having since the last chapter. But can you really convince someone of something that they don't want to believe? Right? They don't want to believe what he's saying. And, and often, we ourselves, we don't like to admit truth, especially in front of others, because we have two options after that. Right? We can consciously live a lie, and our foolishness will be known to everyone, including ourselves. Right? Have you ever done that? I'm sure we all have. Right? Or have you ever met somebody like that who doubles down on a lie and everyone can see it plainly and it's kind of embarrassing? We can do that, right? Or we can change when we encounter the truth. And change hurts, right? It means we have to give up some things, right? For the Pharisees, it means they have to give up some power, right? They have to submit to a power that's greater than themselves. And it means that for us, too. Right? It means coming under the good shepherd's authority. It means saying, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. That's why they don't want to believe in Jesus. And a lot of the time, that's the same reason for everybody else. So instead, they decide to live in denial. And we're asking, what does all this mean for us? And to start, this passage asks, asks us which route we're going to take. Right? And for those who do believe in Jesus, there are some pictures of what sheep do when they're led by a shepherd, which categorize his people. Right? So here's just four quick applications from this. The first one we already read, sheep know his voice. Right? His sheep know his voice. So if Jesus is your shepherd, you know his voice. You recognize his voice. It's one of the reasons why you became a believer in the first place. You heard his voice, your heart resonated with his word, and you believed, 
right? And the more we're in his word, the better we get to know his voice. The more we can distinguish that voice from, from counterfeits. And the second one is we follow his lead, right? We follow his lead. That's in verse 4-2. Jesus leads his sheep and we follow him, right? That means we not only know his voice, but we trust that what he says is good, right? His word is good. And when I say that, I'm talking about scripture, right? The Bible, even when it's hard to understand, even when it calls us to do hard things, now the third one, and I'll spend a little more time on this, Jesus says the sheep run from the wolves or the thieves and robbers, the strangers, the hired hands, these categories that Jesus gave for uh, harmful counterfeits to the shepherd. And so how do you know when you see these people, right? How do you know when you're experiencing this? First and foremost, they contradict the word of God. They twist the gospel to use the message for their own ends, for their own aggrandizement, right? And it's not limited to just pastors, right? Some political leaders of all parties will target Christians and look for ways to exploit our faith to get our vote, right? And they'll divide the church to do it. But make no mistake, right? Jesus said there's one flock, one shepherd, Matthew 7, 16, Jesus talks about these folks, and he says, you'll recognize them by their fruit, right? The results of their work. And so what fruit are we looking for? We can ask, do they foster unity or do they foster division in the church in particular? Jesus said, the wolves scatter the sheep, right? Do they promote holiness or do they make excuses for their own ungodly behavior? Right. Do they are they self aggrandizing or do they are they Christ exalting? Right. Do they exploit fear? Right. Do they offer security in exchange for loyalty to them? Right. These are things to look out for. Or do they exhibit the fruit of the spirit of God? Right. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. Self-control, that's from Galatians 5.22. If you were to look around at some of our most famed leaders, some of the most popular leaders, are they described by this list? Do we want this kind of shepherd, right? Or do we prefer loudness, power, quick changes in our favor? Do we prefer somebody to be a megaphone for our own desires, do we prefer somebody who simply has charisma or, or chooses expediency over love? Right? Jesus exhibited the whole fruit of the Spirit. That's why he's called the Good Shepherd. And it's a good time to ask us, to ask ourselves, right, and assess our own taste buds when it comes to the leaders that we're drawn to. Right? I've fallen into that trap myself. And so uh, let's go on to number four as we ask what it's like, what it looks like to be led by the good shepherd. Fourth and last one. It means we receive abundant life. Right? The presence of Jesus here and now. He has promised to be with us. We receive salvation. We receive eternal life. And now abundance is the opposite of scarcity, right? It means we don't have to steal what we need. The Lord is our shepherd. We have what we need. 
It means the presence and the promises of Jesus are enough for today, right? Because they don't hinge upon our stage of life. They don't hinge upon our bank account. They're with us when we're old. They're with us when we're lonely, when we're confused, when we're sad, when we're tired, when, and no one else can take that away. These are voids that Jesus fills. So don't let somebody creep in and make you think that you can buy this kind of abundance that only Jesus can give. A Christian counselor named David Pallison, he writes what he calls anti-psalms, and they're the opposites of certain psalms, and he does this to help us to grasp the original. So he wrote one for Psalm 23, uh, the psalm that I've been quoting all throughout uh, this sermon. And listen to the alternative that he writes. He says, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed and it's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down dark paths. Still, I insist, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one but myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into a void? They say hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. Now listen to the real Psalm 23 again. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He, le he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live." If you have the privilege of getting old and the light in your eyes grows dim and your memory fails you, which one of these things do you want buried in your heart? I'm alone. Or the Lord is my shepherd. 
Jesus is the good shepherd. He came for for the anti-psalm people. That's us without him. The good news of Jesus is that if you put your trust in him, you are his forever. You will have life and life abundantly. The Lord is your shepherd.